This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, April 19th. I'm Robert Bluey. And I'm Virginia Allen. On today's show, Rob talks with Tim Murtaugh, the former communications director for President Donald Trump's 2020 re-election campaign, and now a Heritage Foundation visiting fellow and Daily Signal contributor. They discuss the media's coverage of President Biden, the border crisis, and more. We also read your letters to the editor and share a good news story about a former Heritage Foundation intern who started a nonprofit to clean up communities in and around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Before we get to today's show, Rob and I want to tell you about an easy and entertaining way to keep up with the news every day. The Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels offer interviews with policy experts on the most critical issues and debates America is facing today, as well as short explainer videos that break down complex issues and documentaries that dive deep into the ways policy actually impacts people. Go ahead and subscribe to both the Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels today. You can search for either on your YouTube app or visit YouTube.com and search for the Heritage Foundation and the Daily Signal. Now stay tuned for today's show, coming up next. We are joined on the Daily Signal podcast today by Tim Murtaugh, a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation and contributor to the Daily Signal. Tim, welcome back. Happy to be with you again, Rob. There is so much for us to cover since we spoke last month. You have been particularly busy writing about the Biden administration's approach to China, Georgia's election reforms, and the media's full-scale embrace of President Biden. Uh, But before we get to some of those, I wanted to get started by asking you about President Biden's first press conference. So uh, this took place on March 25th. It took him 64 days, which seemed like an extraordinarily long time, at least compared to President Trump uh, and his media availability. And I wanted to ask you, as somebody who has observed the media throughout your career, a former member of the press corps, how would you grade the press on their questions of President Biden during this first press conference and any notable differences between Biden and perhaps some of his predecessors? Well, I mean, I think uh, you'd be uh, forgiven if you if you had expected the press corps to actually show up with an apple for teacher, right? I mean, I think uh, they were they were gleeful to have uh, President Biden in front of them, and uh, you noted it was sixty four days into his administration when he had his first press conference. That's longer than any other president in the last one hundred years to have uh, his first press conference. So it was notable for how long it took. But honestly, if you watch that press conference, you wonder what he was waiting for because it was really a great reception from the press corps. They were very friendly. One reporter even you know, referred to him in framing her question, called him a moral, decent man, right? And that's, you know, you, you heard uh, during the Trump years, the press corps always talking about, uh, you know, speaking truth to power, right? And holding the powerful accountable. And here you have somebody loading up the question by by praising the president as a moral and decent man. There's, there's a real adversarial press corps right there. And uh, I would note that uh, President Biden took no questions from Peter Ducey of Fox, who is and you know, one of one of the uh, reporters who who will always ask pointed questions and try to get to uh, a, an important issue and try to drill down on the truth. And uh, the fact is, I don't think that Joe Biden was particularly truthful uh, during that press conference, and and especially on issues that involved the immigration crisis at the border. He said that nothing has changed 
on the border since he became president. And he wanted to go back and talk about how this uh, migrant uh, arrivals at the border always goes in cycles. And, and to some extent, he, he's right. It does go in cycles. But what we're seeing now at the border is so far out of line with what has happened in years past that to say that nothing has changed is, is frankly untrue. He also claimed that his administration has been sending back the vast majority of families who arrive at the border. And that's not true because less than half of families who arrived in February uh, were sent back. So that's clearly not the vast majority. You know, he downplayed the number of minor children who are arriving. He said it's been you know around a 28 to 31 percent increase, which he claimed was right in line with uh, past years. But it was actually 63 percent up. Uh, from January to February, that's the highest levels in 20 years. So for him to to say that there's nothing really here out of the ordinary is is you know really way off base. He also managed to slip in a couple of uh, exaggerations and and uh, untruths about uh, the Georgia election law. He said again, this is this is something that he had, had said a number of times that the polls in in Georgia will close at 5 p.m. now under this law, which is not true. Polls can still stay open until 7 p.m. in Georgia. And he repeated this really greatly misleading aspect of the Georgia law by saying that uh, it's now illegal to give people waiting in line to vote food and water while they're waiting in line and making, you know, conjuring images of people passing out from dehydration while they're waiting in line to vote and, you know, really like torturous uh, situations there as people wait to vote. That's not true. Poll workers can still give people refreshments and food and pizza or whatever. The law prevents campaign workers from wearing, you know, campaign paraphernalia and going and giving people branded bottles of water with the campaign logo on it and candidates logo. Could you imagine the reaction from Democrats if Trump campaign officials had been walking around handing out Trump water to people? There'd be outcries. That's what this law prevents. And so, you know, on, on the whole, I, I would give Biden uh, probably about a, a C on that press conference for truthfulness, uh, for how long it took. And the press corps, uh, I would say I would give a lower grade than that. Well, well, Tim, thank you for that. We're going to to delve deeper into a few of those topics that you mentioned. Uh, you you referenced the liberal PBS reporter who who called him a a moral and decent man, and that was in the context actually of a question on immigration. And I wanted to ask you about this because one of the biggest stories so far of Biden's first few months has been the border crisis that largely he created. And at first, uh, the media seemed to ignore it, and then they tried to excuse it. Some even blamed the Trump administration for it. Uh, interestingly, the White House press secretary has pointedly refused to even acknowledge it is a crisis. What's your take on all of this? Yeah, well, it is a crisis. By any definition, it's a crisis. And it, it's really funny. You mentioned uh, Jen Psaki there, the White House press secretary. You're right. She has steadfastly refused to use the word crisis, even though they call lots of things crises. We have the, the climate change crisis. There's a housing crisis. There's all kinds of crises all over the place, but not at the border. No, that is not a crisis. They call it a, a challenge at the border, except one time in, in a press conference a little while ago, Jen Psaki accidentally said the word crisis when she said crisis at the border. And you could tell she immediately regretted it. And a reporter did, to the resist reporter's credit, sort of pounce on that and, and asked if the use of that word crisis <clears throat> meant that the, or there was a reflection of a change in the administration's approach or their view of what's happening uh, on the on the border. And you could tell that Jen Zaki was very upset that she had made that slip because when asked, you know, does that reflect a change? She said, nope. 
And the guy pressed her again and she said, nope. So she realized that she had misstepped because crisis, when it relates to the border, is clearly a non-word at the Biden uh, White House. And so uh, I think anybody with uh, two eyes and uh, can see just exactly what's happening with the Biden White House, they're preventing access to it. They're not being transparent about it. The numbers are way, way up. You remember we heard so much during the Trump years about kids in cages and Joe Biden was going to end all that. And now we have far more children in the uh, retention centers down there along the southern border than we ever had under President Trump or any other president. And, and they won't call it a crisis, but it is. Well, it certainly is, Tim. And thank you for for your help in uh, making sure that uh, people understand what's really going on there. I think that this is an area where the media has uh, not lived up uh, to to the expectations that the American people have. Uh, some outlets have, have stood out more than others. And certainly at the Daily Signal, we are trying to bring as much attention to it as possible. Yeah, I want to I yeah, say Say uh, Joe Biden caused this crisis, as a matter of fact. But throughout the campaign, and I can tell you, I was the communication instructor on the on the Trump 2020 campaign. Joe Biden campaigned on a variety of things that actually encouraged and enticed people to make the dangerous journey through Mexico, oftentimes from other countries, all the way through Mexico to the southern border of the United States to try to enter illegally. He promised amnesty, amnesty for 11 million illegal immigrants who are already present in this country. He promised that he would not deport anyone uh, as soon as he became president. He promised them free health care. He promised them work permits. And he promised that he would support sanctuary cities, which are localities in the United States, which refuse to cooperate with federal immigration authorities. He promised all of those things if he would be elected president. He laid out the welcome mat. He turned on the vacancy sign of the United States. Of course, it encouraged people to come to the southern border. Heck, a lot of them are there wearing Biden T-shirts, if you've seen the pictures of that. And he says, well, I didn't cause this. They're coming here because I'm a nice guy. You, they're coming because you promised them they could get into the country. There would be no repercussions for breaking our laws to get in. And once they got here, we would load them up with all kinds of taxpayer-funded free stuff. That's exactly what has happened. Joe Biden owns this crisis, and it's no wonder that the White House does not want to call it that, because that's what it is, and Joe Biden caused it. Well said, Tim. Thank you for, for, for making that point. Um, let's shift to what's happening in some of the states. You mentioned this in, in the first uh, answer. You recently wrote a piece for The Daily Signal trying to clarify the Georgia election reforms and pushing back against this leftist tactic of referring to them as racist and uh, and using other words like Jim Crow to describe them. Uh, yet tomorrow, the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is led by Democrats, will hold a hearing titled Jim Crow 2021, the latest assault on the right to vote. Uh, you say these attacks on Georgia's law are unfair and also misrepresent the facts. Uh, what's happening here? Well, what, this is a grand strategy, uh, I believe, that the Democrats have. It's, it's two tracks, and it's to get at one final result. The first is uh, they have to brand the Georgia law as racist, and to to call it Jim Crow is the the obvious tactic that they're taking. And it's a very shocking thing to charge and say that this is this is Jim Crow. But let's remember what real Jim Crow laws were. Uh, they they legalized racism. They legalized discrimination and racial segregation in education, in employment, in public facilities, buses, water fountains. We all know those stories. The judicial system, even cemeteries were segregated under Jim Crow laws. Uh, black people and white people were not permitted to mix really in any meaningful way under Jim Crow. That's what Jim Crow was. Now, when you say 
that asking someone to show ID to vote to prove that they are the voter that they claim to be is the same as legalized racism and segregation of schools and, and removing any chance of opportunity for black people under Jim Crow laws. When you say that those are the same, to ask actually that somebody provide identification, which by the way is provided to you by the state at no cost to you, to liken that to Jim Crow really diminishes what Jim Crow really was. And so this is, this is the beginning of their, of their plan. They wanna label the Georgia law as racist. Then on a separate parallel track, they also have to label the filibuster as racist and then call that a relic of the Jim Crow era, uh, even though the Democrats used it more than 300 times against President Trump uh, while President Trump was in office. Now, all of a sudden, the filibuster is racist. So why do they have to call the Georgia law racist and also the filibuster racist? It's because they want to pass H.R. 1, which is the federal takeover of elections. It will cement the liberal dominance in Congress and in national offices generally and in states for decades to come. And the only way they can do that is by eliminating the filibuster because the, the HR1 will never get 60 votes as required right now for passage in the Senate. So they got to get rid of the filibuster. So the filibuster has to be racist. And the reason why they need HR1 is because laws like Georgia's laws are racist. That's their big, that's their big grand plan. Well, President Biden himself has has outright lied about the Georgia law, whether he was doing so based on bad information he was provided or simply didn't read it. I, I don't know. But we're also seeing major corporations step into this debate with false statements. Uh, if major news organizations aren't going to correct the record on this or hold them accountable, what can we do to make sure that the American people know the truth? Well, you know, a podcast like this is is a good step in the right direction. I think we need to have people who have actually read the law. I know it's it's a crazy notion that uh, we might expect people who are going to comment and opine on a law to actually have to examine what is actually in it. So the more people can and can avail themselves of the information about what the law actually says, uh, I think uh, so much the better. The press corps really fell down on the job on this one, and I, and I really blame the, the press corps as a whole. You saw lots of them, even the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is the, you know, the home of the, of the Georgia law, they had to issue a really embarrassing correction, correcting their earlier report. And I think what happened is you have activists like Stacey Abrams, who uh, gave a really distorted description of what the Georgia law did. Uh, and again, going back to their big grand plan to get H.R. 1 passed, that's that's what her goal has been. And the media just took those criticisms at face value and didn't even look into whether they were true or not. Like this idea of not being able to give people food or water while waiting in line, that really took off and, and was just became accepted as fact. And the idea that, uh, you know, the voting has actually been constricted and, and restricted in Georgia, when in fact it has been made easier for a lot of people to vote and is much more permissive than lots of other state laws. And so corporations, Major League Baseball, Coca-Cola, Delta, and a whole bunch of others uh, just fell in line because when, when, the, when the liberal outrage, outrage mom rears its head, they jump and ask questions of fact later. And I think you see some of that softening because there's been a great backlash against those. President Trump, for one, former president, uh, has called for boycotts of these companies. And I think you saw Coca-Cola just yesterday issue a much more conciliatory statement. So I think they probably realized that they jumped a little bit too soon. Um, and Joe Biden, I think he knows it too. Stacey Abrams says that she wishes that the MLB did not pull the All-Star game from Atlanta because guess what? Atlanta is a 51% black city. 
And there's a lot of black owned businesses that are going to get crushed by not having, they were counting on a hundred million dollars of revenue coming in because of the major league baseball game. That's a, that's not happening now. It's going to Denver. And Stacey Abrams said, whoops, I didn't really want that to happen. And Joe Biden went on ESPN prior to MLB making its decision, went on ESPN and said, I strongly support it if, if MLB would pull the all-star game from Atlanta. And then they did. And then Jen Psaki was asked about it and she said, no, that's not what he said. That's not what he meant. He, he meant uh, he supports the idea that Major League Baseball has the right to do that if they want to. That's not what he said at all. He encouraged them to remove the Major League. You have the most powerful man in the world telling Major League Baseball, I would strongly support it if you pulled the All-Star game. And then they do. And he says, well, that's not what I meant. I mean, so I, it's all over the place. I, I, I really do hope and trust that there will be a snap back and people have some sort of uh, sense of proportion and understand that if they're going to react like this, they better be darn sure that they know exactly what it is that's in the law and not take the activist's point of view as fact. Tim, you and I are, are both big sports fans. Um, I, I it, It's really disheartening that Major League Baseball took took this action. I I do think that there will be um, political ramifications. Be curious to, to hear your thoughts on that. But I also wanted to get your take on on this notion that sports are being so political. I mean, Brett Favre uh, just came out and said, keep politics out of sports. Uh, let's let's focus on on what sports are really about. Um, and as somebody who you know is a fan yourself, uh, what do you think about this move among so many athletes and now even the leagues themselves to take political positions? Well, I, I think this was a gigantic misstep by Major League Baseball. Look, we know, and, and I know you follow baseball, and, and you know that they've been tinkering with all these crazy rules changes that I, I'm sort of a purist about it. I, I oppose a lot of these rules changes, like the idea of in extra innings, you start every inning with a runner already on second base, and they've already changed it. We're an intentional walk. The pitcher doesn't even have to throw the, uh, any pitches. The, the runner already gets on first base. There's all kinds of rules changes. They're trying to speed up the game. There's a clock now between pitches. The pitcher has to deliver the next pitch within a certain amount of time. They're worried that they've been losing audience. Their TV ratings are falling. They're not catching the, the, the next generation of baseball fans because the games have gotten too long. And that's what they've been worried about now for a number of years. And they're tinkering with the rules to try to correct that, make the games faster and, and increase their ratings and in, increase their fan base. So they're worried that people are tuning out of baseball already. And then they go and do something like this where they have told basically half the country, we think you're a bunch of redneck racists and we don't really care for your business anymore. And I don't think it's going to help their bottom line very much. And here's another question for them. If they really did truly mean this, that the Georgia law is so egregious that they had to pull the all-star game out and give it to another city and crush uh, Atlanta with the loss of $100 million of revenue, if they really believed that the Georgia law is that bad, then why haven't they addressed the fact that the Atlanta Braves are still going to play 81 home games in that very same city? Why haven't they pulled any home games from the Atlanta Braves? Why haven't they told Atlanta, you have to get rid of your franchise? Your franchise has to move somewhere else. I mean, why draw the line at moving the All-Star game? Really, if you mean it about the Georgia law, go all the way. Well, it's it's a fair point, Tim. And, uh, and I like how some observers have pointed out that uh, uh, the, the, the field, the baseball park in, in Denver is named after... Course, <laughs> that just yeah. happens to be a founder of of the Heritage Foundation of all places. But uh, back to the point on on Georgia and um, and the backlash. Do you think there will be any political repercussions in that state? After all, it was among the closest uh, in in the presidential contest in in twenty twenty. 
Um, and I know it's a battleground, uh, certainly from a congressional standpoint, and, and most certainly will be in 2024. I think there will be. I think uh, you have the brand new senators, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. Um, <clears throat> they clearly were on the side of of really ginning up the opposition to the Georgia law and, and screaming about Jim Crow and how awful it was. And then the All-Star game gets yanked from Atlanta and the Ossoff and others were looking around saying, whoa, we didn't, we didn't think that was going to happen. Well, honestly, what did they think was going to happen? Everybody's running around calling for boycotts. Uh, of course, they, their goal is to get the corporations to buckle and that's exactly what happened. Then he had Warnock came out and he had to admit, his staff anyway, had to admit that the really inflammatory statement that he had put out about the Georgia law was based on things that were in the preliminary stages of the legislative legislative consideration of it and are not in fact in the final law. So his statement that he put out was completely and wholly inaccurate about what the law does, but they put that out anyway. And so, yes, the, the, the idea that Atlanta has been hit and black business owned, black, black owned businesses will be hurt by the all-star game leaving Atlanta, uh, that is absolutely on the hands of uh, people like Raphael Warnock, John Ossoff, Stacey Abrams, and absolutely voters ought to be reminded of that, that it costs the state economically, it costs jobs, it hurts, it hurt minority-owned businesses when the game leaves the, and goes to a different, a different state. Yeah, I, I think that voters will probably remember this. When the All-Star Game comes to town, you know, Rob, uh, it, it's a big deal for the locality. It Absolutely. really is. Yes. Cities vie for this. They want to get in line. They say, when is when is going to be our chance to host the All-Star Game? Cities build uh, beautiful new stadiums uh, these days with the idea of one day hosting the All-Star Game. And then Atlanta gets it and it's taken away. And the elected officials who caused it to happen are looking around going, oh, boy, maybe maybe we went a little bit too far. And I think they know they did. Yeah, I I think that that's that's certainly the case, Tim, and uh, it's uh, it's certainly something we will be closely following. I should uh, give credit uh, where it is due, and the Washington Post did give Joe Biden for Pinocchios for making those false claims about the Georgia law. So just want to get that in there. I mean, I know that we're very yeah. critical of the media, but there are some times every once in a while, every <laughs> once in a while. Yeah. Well, but you know what? That didn't stop him. He went out and still was keep saying it. That's and, true. You know, Jen Psaki gets that question. Hey, what about the four Pinocchios that Biden got for the it was on the 5 p.m. closing? question, I think. And she stuck to her guns. She didn't even actually address that particular half uh, untruth. She actually went on to list a, a bunch of other things she thought was bad with the law. But um, they show no signs of uh, uh, changing their, their tactics. They're, they're going to continue to misrepresent it. Tim, one final topic for you today. Uh, your most recent column was on China. Why do you say that President Biden's policy toward China is destined to fail? Uh, well, for one, first right out of the gate, um, the former defense secretary under President Obama, when Biden was the VP, Robert Gates, said that Joe Biden has been wrong on every foreign policy call over the last four decades. And I don't see why uh, that track record should change anytime soon. The, the very first uh, international meeting in the Biden administration between the United States and China, it occurred up in Alaska, um, the, the Chinese absolutely embarrassed the American delegation. And uh, what uh, the Chinese representative said, that the people in the United States have very little confidence in the democracy of the United States and that the U.S. does not have the qualification to say that it wants to speak to China from a position of strength. That's what the Chinese said to Tony Blankley, our Secretary of State. And instead of defending the United States, our own Secretary of State chose instead to concede the point 
to the Chinese. And he said, well, you know, a confident country is able to look at our own shortcomings and, and try to get better. That's what that's what's great about America. Essentially telling the Chinese, you know what? You're right. We're actually a pretty bad country and we don't have standing to talk to you about human rights uh, abuses. I mean, that that's outrageous that the United States Secretary of State would not stick up for our own country when he has been publicly embarrassed uh, by the Chinese delegation. But th it's a long, long history of Joe Biden being being wrong on China. On the campaign trail, he just was scornful and openly dismissed the idea that anyone could think that the Chinese were economic competition for us. You might remember the famous videotape where he said, what, China's going to eat our lunch? Come on, man. You know, they're, they're not bad folks, folks, but they're not competition for us. It's just wrong. And with the coronavirus crisis, President Trump stopped travel from China to the United States in the very early stages last January, at the end of January. And Joe Biden called it xenophobia and fear mongering at the time. And we know now that that saved thousands of American lives. And, and Joe Biden was wrong. And he's already restored funding to the World Health Organization which uh, President Trump took away and stopped because the WHO helped China lie to the rest of the world about the, the outbreak and the, the spreading and the veracity of the virus itself. And, and Joe Biden so wants to be loved by the international community that he's going to do things like that. And he's naive enough to think that countries like China won't use that and take advantage of him. And we are already seeing evidence that that's happening, that that opening meeting in Anchorage, Alaska was was the, really just the first. It sure certainly seems to be the case, Tim. And uh, I know that the colleagues of mine at the Heritage Foundation have a, a brand new report, uh, which we can link to in the show notes about uh, the Beijing Olympics and the importance of a decision uh, from from the U.S. on that, not necessarily to boycott, but to, to pressure the international community and the Olympics to uh, to move those out of China. So uh, certainly a lot to watch on the China front. and We appreciate uh, your insights on that. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Daily Signal podcast. You bet, Rob. Always a pleasure and uh, happy to be with you once again. Conservative women, conservative feminists. It's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show. Virginia, who's up first? In response to Fred Lucas's interview with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp explaining Georgia's new election law, one of our podcast listeners left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, writing, If you are tired of hearing hot air and you want to hear the facts, listen to Georgia Governor Brian Kemp describe the new voting law. The Daily Signal is a winner. And in response to Andrew Trunsky's piece, hundreds of corporations and celebrities voice opposition to discriminatory voting legislation, Rick McDonald writes to us, I am so upset at knee-jerk reactions without reading the facts happening in our country. I went straight to the Georgia law to see what it said when everyone was calling it Jim Crow. I am a small business manager. How can big companies not check the facts like they do when they make business decisions? 
I cannot watch baseball as I detest the moving of the All-Star game without due process. How could all of us normal thinking people withstand this hypocrisy? Your letter could be featured on next week's show. So go ahead and send us an email at letters at dailysignal.com or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. In The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. Virginia, you have a good news story to share with us today. Over to you. Thanks so much, Rob. Spending your Saturday picking up garbage is not what most college students want to do with their weekend. But Grove City College student Justin Corbin seems to feel otherwise. Justin founded Cleanup 412 last summer to bring other students and community members together to clean up trash in Pittsburgh and the surrounding communities. The name Cleanup 412 comes from Pittsburgh's area code. Justin is a former Heritage Foundation intern and now a staff member at Heritage, so I recently had the opportunity to talk with him about why he decided he would take the initiative to pick up trash in his city. Justin, you are still in college at Grove City, so I want to ask you, why did you decide last summer that you wanted to start a nonprofit to organize groups of people to pick up trash in your community on Saturdays? Because that's not something that's usually on the minds of most college students. I know I certainly was not thinking about that when I was in school. So what gave you that motivation to say, you know what, I want to take the time on my weekends to pick up garbage in my community? Well, it was, it was a mix of two different things. One, I'm a very solutions-oriented person. And at the time, there was a, a lot of rioting and looting, a lot of trashing happening to different communities across the country. And this wasn't a direct response to that, but, but I realized that we talk about problems so much without actually talking about solutions. And it was something where, where you know, I didn't at the time have all of the, the policy knowledge or a way to promote that. So I figured I could I could do something in my community, something grassroots, something to something that you you walk around, you turn around, and you see what you've done. So so I started I started organizing and started getting people together. But uh, but before we were were filing to become a nonprofit, the other portion of it was actually voter registration. So we were helping anyone and everyone who was looking to register to vote before the election in November to get registered to to get information about different candidates in the Pittsburgh area. So, so it was a mix of just helping people actually beautify and, and make the, the streets look clean and as well as just helping people register to vote to, to become uh, civic-minded people. I love that. It's so simple. Like it's so practical. Um, you know, doesn't doesn't take too too much to you know take a couple hours on a Saturday to get out there and grab a trash bag and pick up trash. So, tell us what exactly a cleanup day is like. I know you just had one earlier this month. Tell us how that went. So before a cleanup, we connect with the Department of Public Works in, in whatever area we're in. We've now done nine different cleanups across, across Pittsburgh, Washington County, uh, Mercer County in, in Pennsylvania. So we have branched out of the 412. But a cleanup day looks like you, we, we hope that people show up. <laughs> it, it is uh, all, always pretty tough to get a lot of people out there. 
But but that being said, our last cleanup, we had 150 students come out to help us organize and, and clean up the community. We do a variety of special projects. We'll do some some litter routes, uh, and then people can can go. Uh, we do like painting on Main Street in, in a few different towns. We we remulch the flower beds, uh, and and really the big thing is just keeping all of that organized, keeping 150 people moving in different directions. And after the cleanup, we'll we'll have pizza. Everybody will kind of kick back. Uh, look back on the hour, hour and a half, two hours of work they've done. And, and there's a smile on everyone's face. And the one thing I will say for, for every single cleanup we've done, like I said, we've done nine cleanups, is that the community reception in each of the places we've gone has been amazing. Cars will honk their horns. People will stop and say, what group are you guys with? Uh, thank you for doing this. So people really appreciate it. And that, that, that's, it's honestly, it's, it's nice to hear when, when you're out there and you're, you're working for sometimes a community you've never been to. But another portion we've added since uh, since we got our nonprofit filings in, it's no longer voter registration, but it's actually a food drive uh, component. So uh, I'm actually very happy to say that that that's been remarkably more successful than the voter registration. And uh, we have we have multiple vehicles full of food. We're looking at three different food banks now from from one different cleanup. I mean, it's just uh, amazing the the reception that people have had to to clean up four one two. Wow, that's so exciting. So for anyone listening who's thinking, wow, this is great, I want to get involved, for any of our listeners who are in the Pittsburgh area, how can they learn more and and even come out and help you guys some Saturday? Yeah, if you're in the Pittsburgh area, please go to cleanup412.com or go to Instagram, cleanup.412. Shoot us a message. You can can find me on really any social media channel at CorbinJT. And, uh, and, but you don't have to just be in Pittsburgh to go out and help your community. And, and I encourage anyone, especially young people who have a group of, of nine, 10 people who, who you can wrangle in with you. It starts small. We started with, with 10, 15 people on our cleanups and here we are with 150. And, uh, and I think we're still growing. So uh, you, you, if you want to make a nonprofit and make it, I don't know if you're from Virginia beach or something, clean up seven, five, seven. I think the opportunities are, are there because what we're doing is, while it may be it may be unique, I don't think it's really actually that special. I think anybody can do it if they have the, the drive to organize and, and make an impact, make a mark on the community. And like I said, it's, it's something tangible you see. You, you turn around after you finish cleaning up, you, you look in the back of a vehicle and there's all that food and, and it's a successful day and you know that. Yeah, oh, I love it. Justin, thank you so much for joining us and thanks for taking the initiative. Absolutely. Thank you, Virginia. Always a pleasure. It is so great to see young people taking ownership for their communities. I think it's so incredible when someone actually sees a need in their own town and then takes action to meet that need. So again, if you want to learn more about the work that Justin is doing, or maybe even volunteer for one of those cleanup days yourself, you can visit cleanup412.com. Great work, Justin. Well done. We appreciate all of your efforts. That's just fantastic. Well, we're going to leave it there for today. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on the Ricochet Audio Network. All of our shows are available at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to listen every weekday by adding the Daily Signal podcast as part of your Alexa flash briefing. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It means a lot to us and helps us spread the word to other listeners. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. Have a great week.
The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Rob Bluey and Virginia Allen. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.